Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 to 14. For this reason, we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you, and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all the might according to his glorious power for all patience and long-suffering with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Amen. Today in this message, we have Paul's prayer for the Colossians. Last time we kicked off our new study in the book of Colossians by uh, kind of just doing an intro. And we learned that this book was written in AD 62 by Paul while he was in house arrest in Rome. His son in the faith, as he calls him, Timothy, was with him. And a man named Epaphras came to Paul in Rome because he had some concerns about a church that he likely planted in a city named Colossae. This church was starting to become infiltrated by false teaching. This false teaching took the form of Greek philosophy, spirituality, mixed with a Jewish legalism. The Greek philosophy sort of looked like this. They said that God was good, everything matter created, everything in the created world was bad, so Jesus could not be a man. It's impossible that God could you know, come in the form of a man. And they believed that to know anything about God, that you had to have this special knowledge that was uh, given to you maybe by angels or by mediums and things like that. And they believed that um, God was distant from man and God wanted really, you know, he was so s separate from man that there were all these different layers of spiritual beings that had to communicate to try to break through to man. And some men and women would get it, and, and, but most wouldn't. And it was this special sort of Greek philosophy. These special people would be initiated into the things of God, right? Now, the Jewish side of this false teaching, what they were asserting was that Christ is not enough, that you have to have faith in Christ, but yet you need to observe the Sabbath, that yet you need to observe the Jewish dietary rituals. You had to eat certain foods, couldn't eat other foods. And that you had to essentially abide by the law of Moses, that you had to be circumcised if you were a man and other, you know, in order to be saved. These things they were saying 
were essential for salvation. You say this is completely relevant today because it sounds very much like the New Age movement uh, saying that you uh, need to have this special knowledge in order to get right with God. You've got to like um, be enlightened and all these things. And then on the other side, completely relevant because there are still churches and denominations today that teach that Jesus isn't enough for salvation, that you have to have Jesus plus works. So it's a completely relevant book. And now the way Paul deals with this problem is he elevates Christ and he directs everybody's attention to Christ. And I would say that that's a good method. I mean, who am I to say? But it's a good method rather than going and picking apart the heresies to make sure that your people have a solid understanding of who Jesus Christ is, right? And you've heard it a thousand times. When you work at a bank, they don't train you by showing you all the different types of counterfeit money, they just trained you to know what legit money looks like. They have you look at the real thing so much that when something fake comes along, you can spot it. A Christian that knows really well what the real thing looks like can spot a fake just like that. It's the Christians that don't have the knowledge of God that every wind of doctrine that comes through the church, they get tossed to and fro, like Paul says to the Ephesians. This is the sort of Christian that turns on the TV and says, whoa, this new thing. Uh, You know, to heck with that other thing I was thinking last week, this is the thing. And then something else comes and somebody else writes a book and somebody else has this new trend. And these trends, even in my short time as a Christian, 14, 15 years, I've seen trends come in and out of the church. And there's always groups of people that go for them. And it's because they don't know, they don't have the knowledge of God. And so that's why Paul's writing to the Colossians is he wants them to have a solid knowledge of who Jesus Christ is and what the gospel is. And that's his way of dealing with the false teaching. Today, we are going to look at Paul's prayer for the Colossians. He's still in the intro of the book and he's uh, going to pray now for them. And it's really cool what we learn by looking at this. Um, if you're interested in learning how to pray, there are a lot of good things in, in this passage that can teach you how to pray. And um, also in this passage, we learn what God's will is for new Christians that kind of need to grow up in the Lord. It's a good thing. And we see that in this passage of what it looks like to be a, a Christian that is kind of going to the next level of maturity, if you will. And we're going to see both of those things. The main point, though, that I want you to get of this passage is because Jesus has freed us from slavery to sin and darkness, we want to please him, which is done by knowing, understanding, and living his will, right? And we learn that by observing Paul's prayer that because Jesus has died for us on the cross, he freed us from slavery to sin and darkness. Because that's true, because we're motivated by that, we want to live lives that please him right? I take for granted if you're sitting here today that you want to please Jesus. That's why you're here. In this passage, Paul tells us through his prayer what a life looks like that pleases Jesus. So this is completely interesting uh, to somebody that's got that heart for wanting to honor Christ. So very simple. Uh, That's where we're going today. First of all, let's look at the contents of Paul's prayer. And then after that, we'll look at the purpose of Paul's prayer, and then finally, the motive for Paul's prayer. That's a little outline if you want one today. Verse 9 is uh, the contents of Paul's prayer. 
verse 10 through 12 is the purpose of Paul's prayer. Verse 13 and 14 is the motive of Paul's prayer. First of all, the contents of Paul's prayer. Let's look at it carefully. Look at verse 9. He says, ever since we first heard of this, that is the good news about them, right? That they are, you know, loving one another, that they have faith, hope, and love. We talked about last time. Because he heard that, it says in verse 9, that we do not cease to pray for you. And that's the first thing I want to focus our attention on today, is that Paul said they do not cease. In other words, prayer is consistent in Paul's life. It's a consistent thing. Now, Paul, as a pastor, asks for things to be done for these Colossians. That's what we see in this prayer is Paul asking God to do things for these people that he loves. Now, what's really interesting to me also is that Paul didn't even know these people, but yet he prays for them without ceasing. Paul loves Christians. Paul loves the body of Christ. By the way, in John's epistle, 1 John, John says that that is a way that you know that you are saved, is that you have love for the brethren. Reminds me of a funny story I heard one time that you've probably heard of before. A lot of my stories, you heard them. But this gal was just bringing her husband to church, just dragging him along, and he just hated it. He didn't want to be there, and he wasn't saved, and he'd leave, and just, oh my gosh, I can't stand those people, and you know, every other thing. And he got saved, right? And then, you know, as you hang around church long enough, you get saved. You start seeing Jesus through people's lives and whatever. And, you know, she brought him back, you know, one time and kept going consistently, and then they had testimony night, right? And they brought this guy up there, and then he goes, you know... I know this Jesus thing is true because I just didn't like any of you people and now I love you. <laughs> you know, like that's a true sign that you're a Christian is you have love for the brethren. You say, I wonder if I'm a Christian today. Paul, ask yourself, do you love Christians? Even the ones that are hard to deal with? You might be the one that's hard to deal with. But do you love them? And Paul did. And so he didn't cease to pray for them. And it's a beautiful thing. Look, where Paul's praying here, this is a good application for your parents in here today, isn't it? If you're a parent and you're trying to raise kids up and trying to disciple your kids, this is a good thing to learn from the Apostle Paul right here is that he never ceased to pray for these people. Now, if he never ceased to pray for people that he didn't know, how much more should a parent never cease to pray for their kids, which they do know, right? Now, where he says, do not cease. Now, I don't want you to think that he didn't get out of his prayer closet and come out into life. I mean, he lived a life. He made tents. We know he did other things. But what this means to pray without ceasing, it means that when you wake up and your eyes are aware that you're awake and you're alive in this world, that you see everything in this world through the lens of like you see God in everything. You know, when you're in Walmart and you see the people in there, you're, you're automatically thinking like these people are either saved or they're not. Right? And you're thinking about this everywhere that you're going. You know, when you're going to the gas station and you see an attendant working in there, you're thinking about that person going, where are they at with Christ? Right? That's what it means to, you know, when Paul says he prays without ceasing, it means that everywhere he goes, he sees God in everything. Right? And you can do that too. That's a choice that a Christian can make to say, look, I, I want to be part of this kingdom. Um, I want Jesus to be my king and I want to be part of his kingdom. And, and that's what it looks like. Part of it is seeing God everywhere living as a Christian 
everywhere. Now, going on in verse 9, he says this. Now, here comes the contents of the prayer. Now, we're, we're going into the contents. Um, it says, that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. The word filled, this has the idea of being totally controlled. Paul is praying that the Colossians would be totally controlled by the knowledge that they have of God, right? And that's legit, right? Because we are all controlled by the knowledge that we have, aren't we? I mean, I get out and do every single thing that I do in life with this body because in my mind, there is some sort of knowledge that's telling me that this is what I should be doing with my body. Everybody is controlled by knowledge because you see it starts internally and then our body is just doing externally what's going on internally, right? And so what Paul is saying is he says, it's my prayer that you would be totally controlled by the knowledge of God that you have. Now, this word knowledge is in the Greek, it's the word epignosko or epignosko. I listened to the, the guy uh, saying it, you know, like to try to get his accent down and everything. I'm not very good at it. There is a other, there's another Greek word for knowledge, ginosko. Now, ginosko is just a general word for knowledge, but epignosko is more of an advanced knowledge. Epi means upon, right? It means up, upon, where ginosko, so you have ginosko, which is knowledge. Now you have epignosko, uh, more upon, like a more advanced sort of knowledge. And so Paul prays that they would be filled with this advanced knowledge. It's an experiential knowledge. You could say like this, I'm praying that you would be filled with a knowledge that comes through experience, right? Now, this was a favorite word of the Greeks, right? Because they, the Gnostics, you know, the whole background is they were always saying, you needed epigonosco, right? You needed to have these angels or these mediums or these principalities and powers reveal to you this special esoteric knowledge. And Paul says, no, I want you to be filled with this epigonosco from God, which is accessible to anybody that desires it, right? See, that's kind of the back, the undertone of the message, right, of the book. It's not just a special knowledge for a secret few. It's for anybody that desires and seeks to know the Lord. He's, he makes himself available. Now, Paul knows this is a weakness for these Colossians. That's why the whole letter, when you read the whole letter, you get that he's ministering to them. He's saying, you need to have knowledge. You need to have epigonosco, knowledge that comes by experience. You need to have this because you're getting battered around to and fro with false teaching. You need to know Jesus experientially. So he addresses this. They had the faith, hope, and love, you know, last time, but they were missing the knowledge. Now, today, there are a lot of Christians in that same place. They, and God help me not to go on a huge rant here, okay? But if churches have lowered what they expect of people intellectually and failed to teach the word verse by verse, you end up with people that don't really know much about God, although they have a zeal for God, and that's commendable. There are people that are just week after week, yeah, we love God, and they're praising their hearts out, and they love God, but every wind of doctrine comes around, they get battered around, and they don't really know anything about God. It's kind of like 
of, you know, teenage love, you know, like you don't know anything about this person, but you sure, you know, can't sleep at night thinking about him. You know what I mean? But the more you learn about him, you start to go, oh, (laughs) but in this case, the more you learn about God, you're like, wow, man. I mean, I had no idea that this was all in here about, you know, about God and I could know him. I could experience him. So ignorance of God's will is one of the greatest sources of instability and misery in the Christian life being tossed around to and fro. You look at a miserable Christian, a lot of times it's because they just don't really know God. You know, they're like, this being a Christian thing is hard. Well, you just probably just don't know God. And you say, well, I have a hard time trusting God. Well, how can you trust somebody you don't know? If I didn't know my wife, I wouldn't trust her. It took me a while to trust her. You know, it takes anybody a while to trust somebody, but how will you trust them if you don't know them? But how will you know them if you don't try? If you don't want to know? Now, it goes on verse nine and it says, um, that you would be filled with the knowledge of what? His will, right? So we need to know what God wants for us. And it goes on and says, his will in all wisdom. Now, I like how he adds that because we're not talking about just an intellectual thing. We're talking about knowledge of his will in wisdom. Now, wisdom, what's the difference between knowledge and wisdom? Okay, knowledge is factual, facts. Wisdom is how to apply those facts to life. So Christian wisdom isn't knowing facts about God. It's knowing how to apply the teachings about God to your life. Knowledge is knowing that tomatoes are a fruit Wisdom is knowing not to put them in a fruit salad. Wisdom speaks of obedience. There are things that you will never know about God until you have committed to being obedient to God. You won't gather Christian wisdom Nobody will gather Christian wisdom until there is obedience to the knowledge that they have about God. Well, I know the things God expects of me, but I just don't do them. Well, you're not going to grow in wisdom. And he goes on to say spiritual understanding at the end of that, in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. He's revealing there the source of where this knowledge and wisdom comes from. It comes from the Holy Spirit. So Paul prays that they and that we, this is a good prayer for all of us, this applies to all of us, praise that they, that we will have the knowledge of God's will for our lives in an experiential way. Here's why this is so important to you today. Because you want to please God. But it's impossible to please God and do what he wants you to do if you don't know what he wants you to do, right? So you got to think through that. I can't please him and do his will if I don't know what his will is, right? And I have to tell you that as a pastor, one of the things I've heard so often from people that are really struggling is, I don't know what God's will is. And I gently tell them it's in the Bible, right? You say, I I don't know, I mean, what job I'm supposed to take. I don't know who I'm supposed to marry. I don't know God's will for my life. I don't know what I'm supposed to do with my life Monday through Friday. Well, you're looking at God's will, maybe in in a way that's not so helpful, okay? Granted, maybe God has the ideal job for you and all this other stuff, but you're looking at God's will as a bullseye. Like you either hit this thing or you don't, 
right? But what you get by reading the scriptures is God's will, rather than being a specific destination, is more about manifestation. It's not, no, not as much about destination as it is manifestation. You say, what do you mean by that? God's will is that you would manifest. Do you know what it means to manifest? I'll show you. I'll just give you a really simple illustration. I'm going to manifest my hand to you. I just manifested it. It was hidden. Then I manifested it. Now you saw it. That's what it means to manifest. God's will is more about a manifestation than a destination. God wants you to manifest Jesus Christ into your life. He wants you to develop Christ-likeness. Because when you have that, and when you have good, solid spiritual disciplines, you seek the word then. And, and if you've got two jobs before you, you know, you know how to make the decisions through a Christian perspective, right? So when people say, I don't really know what God's will for my life is, they say it's in the word. And what God wants to do is he wants to manifest Christ-likeness to you everywhere. And you learn that what God's called you to do is be a Christian in every setting in your life. And then, so it's not so much about this bullseye that you either hit it or you don't. It's a better question is, is are you being Christ-like in every situation that you're in, in your life? That's a better way to understand God's will. It's God's will for your life, quite simply, that you would become like Jesus. So now is the common pattern for Paul's letters. Uh, we move on into this chapter, the rest of the chapter. And Paul, um, first of all, uh, you know, he sets doctrine before practice in a lot of his letters, right? The doctrine comes first. In other words, he tells you who you are in Christ before he tells you what to do about it. And that's what we see here is he's, he talks about who we are in Christ and that we need to know God's will. We need to know the doctrine. We need to know what the Bible says about us, about God, who we are. And now he's going to say um, what he wants them to do. And that's the purpose of Paul's prayer. Uh, Colossians 1, uh, 10 through 12, he says this, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Let's just look at these piece by piece again. First of all, he says that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him. I just want to zero in on that part of that verse for a while. That you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him. There were times in my Christian life where I wondered, it was like, is it possible to please the Lord? You know, I'm a sinner. I mean, how can I possibly please the Lord? How could I possibly walk in a way that's worthy of what he's done for me? And I always felt condemned, you know, like how could I, is this even possible? This tells you right here that it is possible to walk in a way that's worthy of the Lord. That's really good news for you that want to please the Lord. It's really good news. You can do it. It is possible. Now, nobody's worthy in the sense of deserving of the gospel. Nobody deserves salvation, but there is a way that we can walk in our lives that um, is worthy of what Jesus has done for us. Now, um, where he says the word walk there, he's not talking about, um, you know, like, you should walk like this if you're a Christian. That's a walk that's worthy. He should and he's not talking about that kind of walk. Um, what he means by walk is how you daily conduct your life. That's what we mean by walk. You ever heard somebody say, uh, yeah, you talk the talk, but you don't walk the walk. Yeah, that's kind of the idea of walk is um, he's saying you should walk in a way that's worthy. You should walk it out. Interesting word, worthy. It means to have the same weight as something else. That's what the word in the Greek means, to have the same weight 
as something else. So Paul is saying you should walk in a way that has the same weight like of Jesus. Like he's the example. You should be, you know, in this balanced way, like your walk should match up with God, like the greatness of God and who he is and what he did for you on the cross, right? You look at how have you conducted, you know, how we conduct our lives Monday through Friday through Saturday, you know, Sunday, places outside of here. Um, that's what he's talking about. A mind controlled by knowledge, wisdom, and understanding produces a life that is worthy of the Lord. Now, I want to make this clear. We're not talking about earning our way into heaven by our conduct. I'm not talking about that because, you know, salvation is a gift, right? What we're talking about is living in a way that God expects saved people to live. It's kind of like if somebody gave you a scholarship and said, I want you to go to school, <coughs> the worthy way to live would be to go and to do well in school and make something of yourself, right? If somebody gives you a scholarship and you don't do anything with it, that's an unworthy way to live. Implied in this is there is an unworthy way. There is a way for people to live that actually disrespects what Jesus did on the cross for them. Now, he goes on in verse 10 and he says, and you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work. When I was young, my grandma used to say that I was nuttier than a fruitcake. That's not what he's talking about here. Um, the, you know, the next verse up there that we're looking at, the next part of it says that you would be fruitful in every good work. I don't know if you see it in your Bible. And you can look at that word fruitful. And that means... Um, Christian, you know, Jesus' work that he wants to do is coming out through you in all these different areas of your life. That Jesus' influence, that his desire is being produced in every area of your life. Just think of a simple illustration like a tree, uh, that, an apple tree that's rooted in the ground, uh, then it produces apples, right? And so like if a Christian is rooted in, in Jesus Christ, if that's the source, like the roots of the source, right? I mean, the seed determines what kind of plant it is, but the roots are the source of the thing. If you're rooted in Jesus Christ, then you are going to look more like Jesus Christ. That's the fruit of being a Christian is like year after year, you're becoming more like Jesus. If you're sitting here today and you're, and you're not more like Jesus this year than you were last year, that means you're not producing fruit, right? If you look back at a time in your life and you say, I was more fruitful and I was more like Christ and at a different point in my life, like something's happened, uh, you know, like uh, something's happened to you and, and you're not producing that same, uh, same thing um, that you used to be. And he says, be fruitful in every good work. And I like that, that he added that. If you're good at serving, if you do coffee here, be fruitful in how you serve. You know, produce Christ-likeness. Let Christ manifest himself through you as you serve. If you're a teacher, if you're raising kids especially, producing Christian fruit, allowing Jesus to produce the fruit of Christianity in your home, Christ-likeness in your kids, right? Um, if you're good, you know, if you're being a spouse, you need to be fruitful as a spouse. You need to be fruitful as a student in giving and showing mercy to people and caring for the sick, feeding the hungry, making coffee, using your musical gifts, greeting, little things, big things. A life that's pleasing God is one that is producing Christ-likeness through all these different things that we're doing in our lives. 
Now, I will tell you this, that every Christian, every genuine Christian is rooted in Christ and that Christ-likeness will be produced through them because you're rooted in Christ. Um, an apple tree makes apples, right? Um, sometimes you have to prune it and sometimes you got to fertilize it and do all these different things, but the source is connected. Now, he goes on to say, increasing in the knowledge of God. So all the while that you're being fruitful, you're growing in your knowledge more and more about who God is. This is spiritual growth. Now, here's what spiritual growth looks like. This is kind of a measuring stick. We could say, um, for we could measure whether we have spiritual growth. I'll just give you a few things. And it's, uh, one would be a deeper love for the word of God, right? If I'm growing in my knowledge of God, then my love for the word of God is certainly growing, Spiritual growth looks like more and more perfect obedience. We'll never obey Jesus perfectly this side of heaven. But as we spiritually mature, our obedience will get more and more perfect, right? It's just, again, like raising kids. Like there's a point to where they don't obey you. But as you are consistently laying down Christian principles and disciplining them, they behave better and better. Like that's how it's supposed to work. Uh, in an ideal situation. Same thing happens as you're following Christ is as year after year, um, you become more perfect in your obedience. Spiritual growth looks like greater growing faith. You know, I'm stepping out more in faith. I'm trusting God more through the hard times in my life. Spiritual maturity looks like greater more and more sacrificial love. I'm sacrificing more for the good of others. I'm giving of myself more to other people. I'm serving the body. He goes on to say, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power. That's the next part. And I just love this because as you are living out this life, this fruitful life in Christ, growing, knowing him more and more, you are strengthened by God himself. The very same power that pulled Christ out of the grave lives with inside all Christians. You think about that for a second. The same power that conquered the grave lives in me. The same power the power of God himself lives inside of all Christians. Now, some of us might be confused about that. Like, especially you're young, you're into superheroes. You're like, well, if I've got the power of God in me, how come I can't like, you know, uh, pick up a car, you know, or something like that. God's power doesn't work like you might think that it works. But it is a fact that you have the same power living in you. If you're a Christian here today, you have the power of God in your life to live a fruitful life goes on and here's an explanation a little bit about what God's power does in your life. Okay. Really interesting subject. I want to know what God's power does in my life. I want to know how it works. Here's something. Verse, uh, verse 11 there, it says that he, uh, he says, for all patience and long suffering with joy. That's the next part of our examination here. As we walk worthy of the Lord, his strength is there to help us to meet life's challenges and to deal with and overcome problems. Now, you might say, I don't know what the power of the Lord looks like in my life. This is one example of how the power of the Lord looks in your life. It gives you patience and long suffering with joy. Now, 
Do you see the two words there? Patience and long-suffering, they're not the same word, uh, although they kind of seem similar. Patience has to do with things, with circumstances, inward and outward, where long-suffering has to do with people. Patience has to do with being able to hold up underneath the difficulties of life. It's the Greek word hupomone. This is a person who under a great siege of trials bears up and does not lose heart or courage. You say, this is a good thing. I need this in my life. Long-suffering has to do with people. This is the word macrothemia. And this has to do with injurious people, the commentator says. This person does not suffer himself easily to be provoked by them or to blaze up in anger. A lack of patience typically results in people becoming despondent. They can't handle the circumstances of life, so they retreat into isolation. They retreat into drugs, alcohol, uh, being alone, avoiding being engaged in life and in relationships and things like that. This is a person that lacks the patience. They can't hold up underneath the difficulties of life. The person uh, that is lacking the long-suffering, they are often losing their temper with people. They're often taking their stuff out on people, right? But the good news is, is this passage is saying that God's strength in you will give you both of these things. It'll give you patience and long-suffering. There are a lot of us that just foolishly try to manifest these things in our own strength. We try to like white-knuckle it through life. We try to find out ways to deal with the difficulties of life in our own strength, right? But this passage is so exciting because it tells you that God himself, the same power that raised Christ from the dead, will help you to get through circumstances and to deal with difficult people. should be encouraged. All of this is available by God's limitless power working in you as, as you seek to live for him and to please him. Now, here's a question that came to my mind while I was studying. Do you ever wonder why Paul didn't just pray that they would escape all suffering. I mean, that, if we've got the power of God, why not just pray that we escape all difficulties and all trials in life? And it reminds me of a mom that was talking to me one time about her kid and they were in the grocery line and they, she had a young baby and she had an older kid and they were fighting and it was a problem. They had a bag of glow sticks. The older kid had this bag of glow sticks and the little toddler was, you know what a glow stick is, right? You know what it is? The little toddler's screaming, give me a glow stick! Ah!" You know, and then so the guy, the older kid, he, he, uh, you know, gives him uh, the glow stick and, um, or the, I'm sorry, the mom opens the bag and just, here, just take it. You know, they're trying to, they're in the grocery store checkout line, you know, your favorite place with screaming kids, right? And uh, so the older kid goes to the little toddler, little, little young, young kid and takes the glow stick away and the mom's just 
going to let him have it. What are you doing? You know? And then he breaks the glow stick and he gives it back to the baby. And they're like, oh, and it's even better. Right? And she's like, oh, yeah. But the illustration is simple. You say, why does God not make us exempt from all suffering? Well, in that same way that that glow stick only glows once it's broken, your life only glows once it's broken. So God allows you to be broken, right? If you've been a Christian for any amount of time, God has allowed you and has superintended the breaking in your life. He's trying to break you of self-will. He's trying to break you of love for all these other things that come before the love of him, right? That's what God's trying to do in your life today. No doubt. All of us. He's trying to break us from the love of self. And he's trying to have, give us a greater love for him. He wants us to become all we can become in Christ. And just like that glow stick, we have to be broken. And so Paul says that while you're going through these difficulties in life, God will produce this patience and long suffering in you. And that's really good news for some of us here today because, man, I need more of that. I need more long suffering. I have a hard time bearing with people that, you know, that um, I, I can lose my temper pretty easily with people, you know, and lose patience with people. And so I'm really glad that God produces this in my life. I know it's true because it used to be a lot worse, you know. And so I know it's, He's really good at it, you know. He's really good at producing these things. So a Christian has the power and the ability to suffer well. And that's what he's talking about there. The next thing in verse 12, as Paul's praying, he is saying, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers in the inheritance of the saints in the light. Now, another good part of prayer is the giving thanks part. It's a very easy thing to just go to God and ask him for things or even just go to God and complain, which he can handle, by the way. But why not add thanksgiving to our prayers? It's an essential part of praying. Why not thank God? for all the things. I was thinking about it the other day, and what if tomorrow morning you only woke up with the things that you thanked God today for? What if every single thing in your life that you woke up with tomorrow, the only things that you could have tomorrow are the things that you thank God for today, right? You know, being ungrateful in the Bible, 2 Timothy 3.2 says uh, about end times, 2 Timothy 3.2 says that men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy. Unthankfulness is attributed to an evil person, right? So if you're around a person and you never hear them giving thanks about anything or being great, grateful about anything, the Bible would say that that's evil. That's an evil person. No. Goes on to say that he's qualified us to be partakers. Now, this word "qualified," you could say that he made us acceptable. He made us, he he made us okay to receive this inheritance. Now, what is the inheritance? Well, it consists of eternal life. Now, some people think of eternal life as heaven, and that's the only thing they think is when I die, I'm going to go to heaven. But eternal life is a lot more than that. It's a quality of life that starts the second you say yes to Jesus and are converted. You receive this kind of life that lives within you. The, li the life of God himself comes and lives inside of you and it produces the fruit of the spirit and it produces victory over sin. It produces all these different things uh, in your life. And so once, right when you became a Christian, you inherited this eternal life. You say, it might not feel like it, but that's, the Bible doesn't say it's going to feel like it. The Bible says that you are supposed to, in faith, go live like it. 
right? Now he goes on to say, he, now we're going to get into the motive here, that he has delivered us from the power of darkness. Now, this is a super important passage because when you read the Bible, you know that everybody that's not in Christ is under the power of the devil. There are, there are two kingdoms in this world. There's the kingdom of God and there's the kingdom of the devil. And that's it. That's what the Bible says clearly. It says in Ephesians chapter 2, if you want to check that out, read, read the first 10 verses of Ephesians chapter 2. When you were not serving Jesus, you were serving this kingdom of this world. And the Bible tells us who has control of this world. Right? It started in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve forfeited the blessing of having dominion over the earth. They gave control to Satan. Satan is the prince of the power of the air is what the Bible says. Right? So you're either in the kingdom of light or you're in the kingdom of darkness today. And that's what this says right here, that he has delivered us from the power of darkness. Now, this is good to think about here for a second. Notice is that in past or present or future tense? It's past tense, right? Now, I bring this up today because he is telling the Colossians that something has happened to them, past tense. There's a lot of implications to this. Okay, the first one would be this seems to be very strong evidence that a Christian cannot be possessed by the devil. Now, a Christian can be harassed by the devil. Many are. You want to see if the devil will harass you as a Christian? Volunteer to serve. <laughs> see what happens to you Saturday night, you know? See what happens with the people around you that aren't serving God when Satan starts to rile them up all in the flesh and try to keep you from church. See that. If you've ever tried to make a commitment to follow Jesus Christ and everything started getting crazy around you, you know that there's a devil trying to harass you. But this would indicate past tense that they had been delivered from the power of darkness. So if you've ever wondered as a Christian if you could be possessed by the devil, I don't think so. I have full faith that you can't, you know. This is one of the reasons that I believe that. You cannot be possessed by the devil and be a Christian, according to this. Most likely, it's strong evidence pointing that way. Another thing is, too, is when you run into people that have deliverance ministries, what they need to do is help people get saved. Because when you get saved, you are delivered. Now, you do need to be exhorted and learn how to live that out, right? If you have been a slave your whole life, and then all of a sudden the gates open the next day, sometimes you need to be told how to live on the outside. Has anybody ever been to jail or known somebody that's gone to jail for a really long period of time? They have to be taught how to live as free people. They don't get it. Most of them go right back to jail again. Christ springs them from the power of darkness. The next thing you know, they're going and they're serving the enemy again, and they're going backwards in their Christian life, right? And the devil loves that. But Christ, the power of Christ, he delivers you from the power of Satan. He delivers you from darkness, right? You're no longer in that kingdom. You are, uh, look, it goes on in verse 13. It says, and he conveyed us into the kingdom of the son of his love. 
So you see on the next screen there, he delivered us from the power of darkness and he, uh, it's not up there, but you see it in your Bible and you have one. So where it says he conveyed us into the kingdom of the son of his love. Uh, you could say transferred us, transported us. You could think of it like this, that he, you know, Christ showed up with the bus and took you out of jail and took you into freedom, right? It's a good place to be. Verse 14 says, in whom, talking about Christ, we have redemption through his blood. Now, this is beautiful. I, this is some of my, these are a couple of my favorite verses in this whole book. It says that we have redemption through his blood. In October of 2019, a man named Tyler Moon took part in a 10-mile race in Minneapolis. The guy put Jesus saves on his, you know, like they wear those bibs when they do like a marathon or something like that. He put Jesus saves on his, hoping that he would, you know, maybe inspire somebody. Well, that bib became a prophecy that day as around the eighth mile, Mr. Moon had a heart attack and collapsed. <laughs> and people were rushing around him, you know, performing, administering CPR, one called the ambulance. But the one who saved his life was named Jesus Bueno, <laughs> Jesus Bueno. And so it literally became a <laughs> prophetic thing. You know, literally that day, Jesus saved, <laughs> right? Now, Jesus saves is a popular slogan, isn't it? But what does Jesus save us from? Being a servant of the devil was what we just talked about. Being in that kingdom, in that power of darkness, serving Satan. Yeah, hell, like you mentioned, he delivers us also from ourselves, from our own sinful nature that wants to control us and work with the devil. In this verse right here, it says, in whom we have redemption through his blood. You could also say emancipation, right? Now, redemption, what this word means is it means to be delivered by payment of a ransom. Redemption means to be delivered by payment of a ransom. Now, it was used to speak of freeing slaves from bondage, right? There are a lot of different elements of what it means to be saved by Jesus, okay? And this is one that you want to um, think about. This is what this passage is focusing on today is the redemption aspect of it. Now, why would Paul use this slave term? Why do you think Paul would use a slave term? I mean, because we're, we're, yeah, exactly. We were slaves to the, to the enemy, to the devil. We were slaves to the Satan and sin, right? Yeah, good. And so Christ, through his blood, paid to buy you out of slavery to the devil. You think about it, the way slavery worked was you'd have these wealthy people that would go to auctions and, you know, and they, and, you know, and how it worked in America, but how uh, slavery worked in these places uh, too was, you know, servanthood and you were owned by a master and there was a price that you could pay to get you out of that service. And so to get you out of service to the enemy, Christ gave his own blood for you for me. 
If that doesn't melt your heart today, you know, I don't know. This picture of Christ as a ransom, Mark 10, 45 says, for even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Sometimes we get so comfortable with our lives in Christ as Christians, we so take for granted the fact that we forget that, I, I mean, I was serving the devil. I was so miserable in my life from the choices that I was making. I had myself in bondage, but he got me out of that bondage through his blood. That was the price. You know, in Christianity, a lot of times we can get frustrated in our walk with Jesus because one of the reasons we get so frustrated with our walk is because we look at ourselves too much and we just don't think about the blood of Jesus enough. We don't spend time meditating on the cross, what was done for us, the fact that we were slaves to the enemy and now we're free. You've heard that song, Jesus paid it all. It said, I hear the Savior say, thy strength indeed is small, child of weakness, watch and pray, find in me thine all in all. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. For nothing good have I whereby thy grace to claim. I'll wash my garments white in the blood of Calvary's lamb. And now complete in him my robe, his righteousness, close sheltered neath his side. I am divinely blessed. Lord, now indeed I find thy power in thine alone. Change the leper's spots and melt this heart of stone. When from my dying bed my ransomed soul shall rise, Jesus died my soul to save, shall rend the vaulted skies. And when before the throne I stand in him complete, I lay my trophies down all at Jesus' feet. And he says in the end of verse 14, the forgiveness of sins, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Because we've been redeemed, because price, Christ paid the price to the devil, to the slave master, because he, he, he bought us out, he didn't, he didn't pay the price to the devil. He paid the price to get us out of slavery to the devil. I want to be very careful what I say here. He paid this price on the cross. He paid, he paid God the Father's penalty for sin on the cross. And because of that, it results in the forgiveness of our sins, right? Now, one of the interesting things as a pastor over the years watching people come and go in churches and stuff like that is there are always people in the church that are so grateful that their sins are forgiven. Then there are also people who think they are so bad that their sins can't be forgiven. What they're doing is they're putting their standard of forgiveness above Jesus' standard for forgiveness. They're placing their own intellect above Christ himself. If Jesus says that his blood was sufficient to forgive you of your sins, it's, it's not a very wise thing to, to say, no, you're wrong, Jesus. Then in churches, so you've got the people that are completely thankful that Jesus forgave their sins. You have the ones that, you know, hopefully no longer think that they're too bad to be forgiven. And then you have the people that say, I'm a pretty good person. I don't really need to be forgiven. And those people will never understand in the state that they're in what the cross means and what Jesus means. 
I want to conclude here. Because Jesus has freed us from slavery to sin and darkness, we want to please him, which is done by knowing his will for our lives, right? Having understanding, wisdom, living his will out, having fruitful lives. And this is what Paul played, prayed for the Colossians. As we live to please him, his strength will empower us to live joyfully even in the hardest times. Now, I want to help you apply this passage to your life because you've just listened to a lot of information. And I know a lot of you are very excited to turn this into life transformation, right? God forbid that it would seem like you're coming and kind of watching a TV show here. You know, the people that are watching online, if you're watching online and you're not part of a church, like you're missing out what God wants for you. You know, if you're not, if you can't be engaged, that's one thing. But if you just are not because you like the comfort of just watching it on a TV instead of being involved in a church, that's not pleasing God. That's not a life that pleases God. Now, here's a couple of ways that we can apply this to our lives, okay? So there are two lenses we could look through this passage. We could look at it through the lens of the Apostle Paul, because as Christian ministers, we're all ministers, we all want to learn from Paul how he did things. And so first of all, we can learn from Paul's prayer life, okay? Paul uh, has taught us a lot about how to pray in this passage. You could read it again with that thought in mind. I want to learn to pray, so I'm going to really examine what Paul said here. So this week, reread this passage and start to apply this to your prayer life, okay? When you pray, actually just say the words that Paul said right? Just start incorporating these words and understanding the meanings of them. Now that we've went through every single little detail of this, you understand the meaning of all these terms fully. And now when you sit down to pray for your kids, you know, uh, uh, your friends, your neighbors, your, uh, you know, employers, employees, when you start to pray for people, start to use these words and start to give thanks in your prayer like Paul did, and your prayer life's going to grow, okay? So you could do that. Just one time this week, just reread this passage Think about it and start taking these words and start applying them to your prayer life, right? Now, I want to make one more comment about this. For Paul to be able to pray for the Colossians, he had to know what their needs are. For you to be able to pray effectively for people, you need to know what their needs are, right? I need to. So here's something else very practical. After I say amen here today and dismiss the church, ask somebody in here how you can pray for them, okay? Just walk up to just one person, and, and I'm already, you know, uh, clear in the air. I'm already, uh, you know, paving the way for you, so it'll be easy. All you have to do is just say, he's told us to do it. And then, so just, uh, just ask one person in here how you can pray for them, okay? And it doesn't matter if you're brand new, you're, it doesn't matter who you are, just, just do it, right? This is a practical way to apply this passage to your life, right? We want to live fruitful lives, and that will be fruit in your life. You know, the Christian life is about next steps, right? It's all about taking these next steps, and this could be a great next step for you is to ask somebody here today how to pray for them. And one more thought, and we'll, cl we'll close right now, is if you put yourself in the perspective of the Colossians and you've got this guy, the Apostle Paul, praying like this for you, it tells me that I can live a Christian life that's fruitful and I can please God. I can know his will and I can please him. And I can be motivated by what Jesus did on the cross. That, that is my motive, but I know that I can please my Lord. And so that's just a beautiful comfort to me today.